But all right, if you got your Bible, you um, turn to the minor prophet Jonah. <clears throat> this morning we're, we're moving on in that series this summer, studying through the minor prophets. Minor, called minor only in terms of the fact that the books they wrote are shorter than the major prophets, such as Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever. We've already looked at three of these minor prophets, Joel, Amos, and Hosea. Aaron Wine was in here two weeks ago to teach us through Amos. Today we come to the probably the most well-known of the minor prophets, Jonah. Um, Jonah, I, I, I think, is, is most well-known and well-loved probably because he's the easiest of the minor prophets to understand, and he's probably easiest to understand because his book is, his, his book is not like the other minor prophets. Uh, and what I mean by that is his book tends to be more about the man than the message. It, it, it tends to be more narrative, just the story of an episode in his life, rather than the message he preached. Uh, that's different than, like, you know, the other minor prophets, you have these long, like, there's just... Uh, prophetic oracles that are hard to understand sometimes. Think of Hosea last week. It was 14 chapters. 14 chapters of Hosea, and like chapters 1 and 3 were really the only things that, uh, chapters that were somewhat biographical uh, of Hosea's life. Chapter 2 and then chapters 4 through 14 were these prophetic oracles or almost like poetry that, are, that take a lot of digging to understand. You don't have any of that in Jonah. It's really just the story of his of his life. He does deliver a message. In chapter 3, Jonah does preach, but in the original Hebrew, it's only five words. So he's not wordy. Uh, and, and the story that it does tell about his life is, is quite interesting, to say the least. But before we get into it, let's, let's, get some, let's get some background, and then I'll tell you how I want us to approach thinking about it. Who was, who was Jonah? Uh, let's, let's, get, let's get our heads around who Jonah was uh, before we start studying his book. Who, who was he? When did he live? Where did he live? Remember, this, this is the backdrop to all these minor prophets. Remember that after David and after King David and after his son Solomon um, reigned, after Solomon reigned, the kingdom divided. It divided, there's 12 tribes of Israel, it divided, but the, the northern 10 of those 12 tribes were the northern kingdom, kept the name Israel. The two southern tribes took the name Judah. And, uh, and you know, last week we studied Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom in the mid-8th century B.C. And, uh, and under King Jeroboam II. And Hosea was, was the prophet of record during the latter years of Jeroboam II's reign and then all the kings after him until the Assyrians took over Israel, deported all the people, conquered them. And uh, well, jo- Jonah is somewhat in that same neighborhood. They were sort of Jonah and Hosea were sort of contemporaries around the same time. If, in fact, if anything, Jonah was was a few years before Hosea. They were both prophets in the northern kingdom, and and they were both prophets at some point under the reign of King Jeroboam II. I told you that Hosea was in the latter half of Jeroboam II's reign, and then all the kings that came after him. More than likely, Jonah was earlier in Jeroboam II's reign. And uh, how do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that. Remember last week I told you that when you study these, any prophet, major or minor, the good thing is the historical context of those 
prophets you can usually find in the Bible as well. You can, because a lot of times the prophets will say they prophesied under the reign of this king or that king or this king or that king. And you can turn back to the historical books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and read what was going on during that time. Or you can read about that king. Well, when you come to Jonah, he doesn't, um, he doesn't tell you who was king, but actually, if you look in Jonah 1.1, it does uh, say, he identifies himself as Jonah, the son of Amittai. And interestingly, his name does appear in 2 Kings chapter 14 uh, during the description of the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. I told you last week, and you might remember, that Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom was unusual in the fact that he reigned for a very long time. Forty-one years he was king. You read most of the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were like very short reigns, a year, six months. One of them after Jeroboam was even one month before he was assassinated. Jeroboam II is 41 years. That's a long time, longer than Brother Al's been at Lakeview. But <clears throat> um, one year longer. Anyway... <clears throat> I told you that under the reign of Jeroboam II, it was, a, it was an unusually prosperous time. Like there were, uh, It was a time of like building and, and expansion, expansion of the borders, expansion of the territory, um, material prosperity, luxury, comfort, and uh, agricultural abundance. That was a big deal in an agrarian, agrarian economy. So the one time that you do see Jonah... Outside of this book in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 14, under the reign of Jeroboam II, this is what we're told about him. He, this is 2 Kings 14, 25, he, Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by, the, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gothafair. So it was, it was Jonah... Uh, who, whom God had used to prophesy to the northern kingdom during Jeroboam II, hey, good times are coming. You know, there's going to be prosperity. Your borders are going to expand. I mean, that's what he said. It literally says that's what he prophesied. Jeroboam, under Jeroboam II, the, the borders expanded just like Jonah had said, just like God had told Jonah to say. So in some ways, uh, we don't, we're not told anything else about Jonah in the, in the historical background, but it does tell us, when he prophesied under Jeroboam II, and he was probably well-liked because he wasn't a prophet saying doom and gloom judgment's coming. He's a prophet saying borders are expanding, you know. Prosperity is here. Now, we learned in Hosea, and when Aaron taught, you saw it under Amos, that that's a double-edged sword. That prosperity uh, also led to their moral uh, perversion. <clears throat> but... Uh, that's who Jonah was. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom, and he prophesied at a time where his message was prosperity, right? Borders expanding. So he's probably a, a popular prophet, if there ever there was one, right? Well, what about Nineveh? We're going to see that Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh and preach. What was Nineveh? Where was Nineveh? Uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. If, you, if you're looking at a map, and, he, and here's, here's Israel, to the north and to the east was this massive Assyrian empire. And, uh, and, and Nineveh was the capital city. Uh, and Nineveh, in fact, is, is mentioned very early in the Bible. In the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, we see the first appearance of Nineveh. This is what we read in Genesis 10, 8 through 11. 
Cush fathered Nimrod and apparently had something against him. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So Nineveh had the same origins as Babel, which was later Babylon. Um, if you read Jonah, and I hope you, you've read it uh, before you come, you've come here, and most of you have, at some point have read Jonah, so you're somewhat familiar with it. By the way, next Sunday the prophet is Micah. So be reading Micah this week uh, before you come. But if you read Jonah, over and over again, Nineveh is described as a great city. It's described that in chapter 1, verse 2. Or in chapter 3, verse 3, an exceedingly great city. It was a big place. Chapter 3, verse 3 also says that it was three days' journey in breadth. That'd take you three days to walk across that thing. That was a, it, was a, it was a huge, huge place. And it tells us also uh, in, in the last verse of the whole book that there were more than 120,000 people that lived there. And in that day, that's a huge city, 120,000 people. Uh, but it was exceedingly wicked. They were, they were ruthlessly wicked these are the people who like less than 50 years later would overtake israel and um and do it in a ruthlessly wicked way in fact a hundred years after jonah there was another prophet on the scene nahum that we'll study later on this summer and when assyria did finally overtake israel and deport all the people this is how nahum the prophet a hundred years later would describe it in his book nahum 3 verses 2 and 3 he says, the crack of, of the whip, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. So you get a flavor of the wickedness of the Assyrian Empire and the ruthless nature of that people especially would have been true in the capital city of Nineveh but that that hadn't happened yet Jonah was on the scene that was a hundred years later but Nineveh had a reputation for it already in Jonah's day just just immoral and and ruthlessly wicked and then God calls Jonah the prophet the well-liked prophet of prosperity in the northern kingdom of Israel I want you to go to Nineveh and 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 uh preach to them and that's where the story begins uh, i want us to think this morning about the gospel according to jonah that's been our theme throughout this whole series because the way paul opens the book of romans he talks about how the gospel concerning jesus christ was preached beforehand through his holy prophets in the scriptures so how, do, how does that happen how, what does that look like in real time and how do we see it in these prophets so we're going to think about that in jonah the gospel according to jonah and i think we see it in a few ways we see it, first of all, in, in the, just the different elements of the story. Like, we see our sinfulness. We see, we see God's holiness and God's mercy. We see His desire to save and to forgive. Um, our need for repentance of our sin. We, all that is, is layered into the story of Jonah. But second, we'll see it in the way that, that Jesus Himself mentions Jonah in the Gospels. So it's interesting. It's a fascinating story. So here's how I want us to lay this thing out and think about it. First... From, from chapter 1, we'll take a, a, like a point from each chapter. In chapter 1, 
we're going to see Jonah's rebellion. It's, it's, it really, it's a rebellion that's left unsettled even, by, even in the end of the book. Um, but I believe that's by design for a reason, and I'll say what that is. So chapter 1, Jonah's rebellion. Chapter 2, God's reign. That's clearly spelled out not, not only in chapter 2, but also in chapter 4. But we'll, we'll see it for sure in chapter 2. And you'll see because Jonah is, is uh, written in the form of a satire. It's true, but it's written in the literary form of a satire. So everything is exaggerated for effect. Um, it's used exaggerated style, exaggerated language. And, and, and in this case, you cannot miss the, the sovereign reign of God in Jonah. Then from chapter 3, we'll see Nineveh's relief. That's how I'm describing what, what takes place there. Um, is it true, genuine salvation? Is it something else? We'll talk about that. Nineveh's relief. And then finally from chapter 4, Jonah's repentance. When you read Jonah chapter 4, you might go, how in the world do you see repentance in that chapter? Well, I'll, I think you do, and I'll explain what I, what I mean. And in the end, we'll come back and say, where does... Where does Jesus mention Jonah in the, in the Gospels, and how does he use it? What's the point he's making? Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the book. Father, this is, uh, that we have opened before us, this is your holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. Um, this isn't just the word of Jonah, a man. This is, this is your word spoken through him. And uh, as, as Peter tells us in Second Peter, that uh, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And, and all Scripture is God-breathed. And so uh, we want to learn from you today through, through your word. So please, Lord, give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Give us uh, ears to hear the truth when we hear it. Give us uh, minds to understand it. It's hard sometimes to cover a whole book in one time. It's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff. So help us to, to see clearly what you would have us to see from this whole, whole story of Jonah. Finally, give us hearts to embrace the truth that we see here, to love it, not to, 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 to rebel against it, not to argue against it, but to say that's true and I love this truth. And then wills to obey whatever it leads us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach. And again, give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's think first about Jonah's rebellion. So Jonah identifies himself in the opening verse. Uh, Jonah, the son of Amittai. But then in, in verse 2, God speaks. He's the first one to speak in Jonah. And he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And you think that aside from maybe sheer terror at the prospect of walking into this wicked city, and, and he's used to being a prosperity prophet, you know, how do, what, what's it going to happen when if I bring a hard message against the people that I already know hate me, not even my own people? Aside from maybe sheer terror at the prospect, you might think that Jonah might jump at the chance to preach that message. Uh, you know, to, to tell the menacing neighbor to the northeast that they're about to get what's coming to them, right? But here you have God's, God's prophet, God's prophet having received a word from God to deliver, doing exactly the opposite, 
right? Because verse 3 says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. There's a lot in that verse. First, it says clearly three times that instead of going to Nineveh, he went to Tarshish, which if you look on a map is in diametrically the opposite direction. You know, Nineveh here, Tarshish way over there. He's going in literally the opposite direction. But this, the verse also is clear on, on what was his purpose because not only does it say three times he went to Tarshish, it says two times that he was fleeing away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord. In fact, in this first chapter, it'll say that one more time before it closes in verse 10. We'll get to that in just a minute. But he wasn't just running away from Nineveh. He was running away from the Lord. Like he was, he was, he, he was, and you will see, he was angry at God. Right? And, and another lesson from that, that verse right there is that there's always a ready path. There's always a ready path when you want to run away from the Lord. Right? He wanted to go in the opposite, opposite direction, and of course, there's a ship going exactly in that direction. You know? And he had to pay for it. And he would pay for it in more ways than one. Um, there you go. Verses 4 and 5 says that when he got on that ship, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Does that remind you of anything? If you're familiar with the New Testament, does that sound familiar in any way? It reminds me of two things from the New Testament. Uh, the first thing it reminds me of is Paul on his way to Rome. Remember, Paul's on his way to Rome. He had been arrested. He was going to appear before Caesar. And at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 27, he's, he's on his ship, and there's a, there's a storm at sea, and the sailors that were on that ship were freaking out and they were throwing cargo over that you know and and but and they end up even having a shipwreck that night but but there you have paul in chains for the gospel you know and that and that's the situation in which paul there's is that storm at sea but the other one the, the more that jumps out at you is jesus asleep at the bottom of the boat you know asleep during the storm and the disciples have to wake him up but in either case could there not be any starker contrast Right, so Paul was on 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 his uh, ship in in steadfast obedience, like right? not counting his life of any value that he might just finish his course, and be faithful to Christ. That's the situation in which he found himself in a storm at sea on a boat. Jesus, the Lord over the sea, the righteous one, asleep at the bottom of the boat. And then you have Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, running away from the presence of the Lord. And he was proud of it. He wasn't, he wasn't sorry at all. And by the way, notice how often it says Jonah was going down. Like that's just another feature of the uh, literary stuff here. In verse 3 it says he went, he went um, down to Joppa. Right? And then in this twice here in verses 4 and 5 it said he went 
uh, when Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, he had lain down and was fast asleep. That's just, it, Jonah's running away from the presence of the Lord and he's going down, he's going down, he's going down. You know? And he was comfortable in this rebellion. He wasn't sorry in the slightest. Like, how do we know that? Well, when the, during this storm in chapter 1, the sailors were panicking and they were praying to their gods while Jonah was asleep. And they go down, you can see this uh, beginning in verse 7 and following, they go down to Jonah where he's asleep and they wake him up and they ask him what in the heck is going on. And they, they ask him who he is, what's your name, where are you from, what do you do, what's your occupation? They ask him those three questions. What's your name, where are you from, what's your occupation? He answers two of the three questions. He says, I'm, I'm Jonah and... Uh, and, and, and I'm a Hebrew, but he, he doesn't answer what his occupation is. He doesn't say, I'm a prophet. He doesn't tell them that. But what does he tell them in verse 10? Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. How did they know that? Because he had told them. He had told them. That's what he wanted to talk about. He didn't want to talk about the fact that he was a prophet of God, that he didn't give it a message of God. He wanted everybody to know, I'm angry at God. I'm mad at God. I'm bitter at God. That tends to happen a lot when you're angry at God. You talk about it a lot. But he was hoping to convince them that he was justified. One of the big ironies of chapter 1, irony all over Jonah. One of the big ironies in this satirical, uh, also historical account is how, is how humble and repentant the pagan sailors were. Right? They, they call on Jonah's God even when he wouldn't. Like they, they feared the Lord, Jonah's Lord, even when he didn't. Jonah had told them in verses 11 and 12 that if they would, hey, I'm the cause of all of it, and if you'll just throw me into the sea, the, the storm will stop, and it'll be all over. And they end up doing it, but the hilarious thing is when they, when they throw Jonah into the sea, they then pray to the Lord that he wouldn't hold it against them. And in verse 16, it actually says that the men, the, the pagan sailors, feared the Lord exceedingly. How many times do we see this word exceedingly? Exaggerated language. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This deliberate contrast between the rebellious prophet and the, and the repentant pagans. That's, that's, the, that's the, the irony here. It's meant to highlight just how unrepentant and how rebellious Jonah was. Even the pagans were believing before the very prophet of God was believing. And don't mistake Jonah saying, throw me into the water and the storm will be over. Don't mistake that for humility. That was his, that was probably his strongest rebellious act of all. Why? Because if he died, he didn't have to go to Nineveh. You know? I'd rather die then go to Nineveh. And in that water, who knows what Jonah was thinking, not humble repentance. The question has to be asked, though, before we move on to the next point. Why was Jonah so rebellious? Why? Like, because you know it's not, you know it's not that he was afraid to go to Nineveh because none of his subsequent actions would lead you to believe that. Something else is going on. Why is he so rebellious? Why is he so angry at God? 
I mean, the message that God had given him to preach was call out against it for its evil. Okay. Why would he not want to preach that? I don't think it was fear. I think it was hatred. I think it was hatred. He knew, because God never God doesn't change, and he'd already said things like this, but Jeremiah would be a later prophet after Jonah. But he would... God would say it through him very well. He knew the character of God. And he, like Jeremiah would later say in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8, God says through Jeremiah, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. Jonah knew that about God. That's what Jonah was afraid of, right? He, that God just might forgive the very people that he hated. Jesus would later say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why do you think Jesus needed to tell us that? Because we're all Jonah. We're all Jonah. We don't naturally gravitate to do that. Right? But chapter 2 shows us that even as rebellious as we are and, and, and as hard as we kick against the plans of God, even when we rebel, God still accomplishes his purpose through us and in us. He reigns. Just as soon as Jonah hit the water <laughs> and the pagan sailors were praying and repenting with exceeding fear of the Lord, uh, Jonah was probably thinking he's going to die and rid himself of the obligation to go to Nineveh that God had told him to do. But then the last verse of chapter 1 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord appointed a fish. Despite what we do learn in Vegas Bible School, we're not told it was a whale. Might have been, I don't know. Great fish. Um, God is Lord over the fish. and I like how often God, the scripture tells us he's Lord over the fish. You know, Peter, come follow me. We, you know, we hadn't, throw out your nets. Well, we've been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything. Throw them out again. Fish. You know, where are we going to get the money for the taxes? Go catch a fish and look at its mouth. Look in its mouth, and he found tax money to pay. It's crazy. God's the Lord of the fish. We pointed a great fish, and uh, and don't forget it was the Lord back in chapter one, verse four, that it was the Lord who hurled uh, the great wind upon the sea and caused the storm in the first place. And God did not bring this fish to kill him, but to save him. And uh, Jonah, Jonah really thought he was throwing off God's plan by going the opposite direction. Uh, running in rebellion, but it was nothing of the sort. God is sovereign, and he will accomplish his will and purpose. And we'll see that for sure in chapter 2. two chapter 2, verse 1 says that Jonah prayed while he was in the belly of that fish. This is what we find, the prayer that we find here in chapter 2, I'm convinced, is, is probably a good summary of what he did pray while he was in the fish. But this was clearly written after the fact. Uh, he, didn't, he wasn't sitting there with pen and paper writing this while he was in the gut of a fish. Um, so I think this is a mix of what he prayed while he was in the belly of the fish plus some later reflection on it, right? Some hindsight. And, 
And notice something that he prays in verse 3 compared to something we saw in the first chapter. Remember in chapter 1, verse 12, Jonah had said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Jonah said that. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Well, look at what he later prays in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 3. He tells God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. You did it, Lord. In chapter 1, throw me into the sea. Jonah's decision. Chapter 2, God, you were doing that. It's like what Jonah meant for evil, God meant for good. God is sovereign. And notice the recognition in this prayer in chapter 2 on Jonah's part of God's sovereignty. Notice the end of, end of verse 2. Uh, you heard my voice. In verse 3, you cast me into the deep. End of verse 3. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And, and the end of verse 6. You brought my life up from the pit. So the Lord was Lord over all of it. And then in verse 10. Gross. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So the Lord sovereignly in a very gross way, which Jonah very much deserved, brought him back to the dry land to go to Nineveh. All this right after verse 9, which is the central verse of the whole book. Okay, Your, Verse 9 is the middle of the whole book that says salvation, is, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what it says at the end of that verse. It was written this way on purpose. Like this is all, a lot of this is literary style of, of, of ancient Israel and they, they crafted it where they would, you would know that this is the, the center, the peak of the whole book and the confession is salvation belongs to the Lord. So God reigns and chapter 2 has shown that he will, he, will, he will accomplish His will and accomplish His purpose through us. Through us. He, we cannot kick against the plans hard enough to disrupt what He will do through us. And through your life, Nebuchadnezzar, later on, under the, the Babylonian king, later on Nebuchadnezzar would think he could do this, but God made him crazy and he ate grass like an ox. And he came back and he confesses in Daniel 4.35, pagan king Nebuchadnezzar says that God does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? We'll see more of this sovereignty of God over, over all things when we come to chapter 4. There's more of it there. But for now, Jonah's back on dry ground at the end of chapter 2. He's back on dry ground. And as chapter 3 opens up, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Go to Nineveh and call out against the city for its evil. And this time, chapter 3, verse 3, says Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord talks about how big Nineveh was. We'll see when we come to chapter 4 that Jonah still did this through gritted teeth. He wasn't, any, he wasn't anywhere close to repentance, even though he was obeying. I mean, his heart was still angry at God. It was the last thing on earth that he wanted to do because he knew how they might respond, and it happened exactly like he thought it might. And with that, we see Nineveh's relief in chapter 3. This is, the story is pretty simple here. Uh, Jonah's recorded sermon in verse 4 is only five words. 
in the original Hebrew, in English, it says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I don't know if that's his whole sermon or if that's shorthand for a longer sermon he preached, but that's the gist of the message. And what happens? Verse 5, and the people believed. The people of Nineveh believed God. And verse 6 says that the king of Nineveh, it didn't say king of Assyria, it's king of Nineveh. In that day, Assyria was sort of broken up into pieces and in each different province had its own king. So this provincial king heard about it. And in verse 7, he made a proclamation. That everybody should repent of their evil and fast and mourn. He even says the cattle. Even the cattle should fast and mourn. Isn't that crazy? Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. The cows better repent. Satire, exaggerated effect, you know? And he commands all of them in verse 8 to turn from their evil so that God might relent from the judgment that he had pronounced by the wayward Hebrew prophet Jonah. And yes, what you knew was coming comes in verse 10 of chapter 3. God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring because they repented. Is this revival? God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and they didn't do it. They repented. Even the cows repented. Is this, is this revival? Is this, is this genuine salvation? I don't know. Maybe for some, yes. In fact, when, later on when Jesus does mention it, he will say the, 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 the men of Nineveh will rise up against this generation of Pharisees because they repented at Jonah's preaching. But, they would, the, these, but the Pharisees didn't. So maybe some of them were. I don't know that everybody, I don't know that the cows were saved. I don't know if everybody was saved or if they just, it, it, it chastised them. They stopped some of their wickedness and God didn't bring the earthly judgment on them. But either way, God relented. And he relieved the Ninevites from the judgment that he had warned to bring against them. And again, in Jonah, the satirical nature of the book, the irony comes up again. In chapter 1, it was the, it was the pagan sailors who were repenting, not God's prophet Jonah. In chapter 3, it's the pagan Ninevites who are repenting. What's Jonah, God's prophet, going to do? How's he going to respond to his action? That brings us to chapter 4, and with it, I think we see Jonah's repentance. The opening words, however, are, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I'm telling you, everything's exaggerated for effect. I think exceedingly might be the most common word in Jonah. Jonah was mad about it. Nineveh repented. God didn't do what he said he was going to do. Made Jonah out to be a liar, seemingly. He was exceedingly mad. Why? Why, why did he say he was mad? Verse 2, the end of that verse. I knew, I knew, God, I knew you were like this. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful. Man, the audacity to be mad at God because he's merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah was okay if God was that way toward him or his people. But he couldn't stand God being this way toward his enemies. 
Jonah expected God to be made in his own image. God is slow to anger. Jonah is immediately angry, exceedingly. But to his credit, in chapter 4, he prays again to the Lord. He had learned one lesson by this point. He, he had learned that God would sovereignly accomplish his, his purposes through him, despite what he did. So instead of trying to kill himself again, in verse 3, he just asked God to do it. Please take my life from me, Lord. Better for me to die than to live. He couldn't live in a world. He could not live in a world where God might forgive his enemies. So God, please kill me. And the Lord asks him in verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? That's very similar to the question that God asked Cain in Genesis 4. Do you do well to be angry? Well, Jonah, had, Jonah had learned that God, no matter what he did, God was going to do what he's going to do through him. So no point in him trying to kill himself, so God, would you please kill me? But now God would not just work sovereignly through Jonah, but now he's about to work sovereignly in Jonah, in Jonah the prophet. Verse 5 says that Jonah went, <laughs> he went outside the city and he sat on a hill to see if God would destroy the city anyway. He really couldn't believe that God would forgive them, which really shows how blind he was to his own sin, his own shortcomings, his own people's shortcomings. Think about how wicked Israel was last week when we studied Israel. I mean, to think that Nineveh owed it, but Israel didn't, wow. To show him uh, his own sin, God, it says in verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. There's a footnote uh, in my Bible, maybe in yours, in verse 6, when it says appointed a plant, it tells you the Hebrew words. It's probably the castor oil plant. Medicine. Bad tasting medicine. He made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. There's that word again, exceedingly, because of the plant. Now note that word discomfort. To save him from his discomfort. God didn't appoint this plant, whatever kind of plant it was, just for his shade to make him comfortable, but to save him from his discomfort, it says. Some translations are not always helpful. I don't, think, I don't know that this is a, a particularly helpful translation here. The same, this same word translated discomfort here in this verse is the same word that's already been used twice in this very book about Nineveh to describe how evil it was. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil. That's this word. In chapter 3, verse 10, after they repented, God relented because they had turned from their evil way. And so now, God, same word, God pointed this, this, this plant to be a shade over him to save him from his evil. Right? Jonah has his own evil that he needs saving from, so God appoints a plant. Seems random. But he's exceedingly glad about it. It's the first thing he's been, it's about time. It's the first thing he's been happy about in the whole book. He might even be thinking that God had come around to his way of thinking. Like, I, I, it's worth it to sit here. Look, God even gave me shade. Something's about to happen. God's agreeing with me. 
God saying sorry by, by bringing this plant, bringing this shade, thinking he was totally in the right, but quite the opposite. God was going to use this plant to show Jonah how petty and how self-centered he was. Because the, the very next thing that God sovereignly appoints in verse 7 is a worm who attacked the plant and caused it to wither overnight. Anybody had a garden knows that worms can do that. Bugs can do it. It's here, it's gone. Jonah's shade was gone. And now in verse 8, God sovereignly appointed a scorching east wind and simply made his life miserable. God can do that in love. Believe that. But Jonah was livid. Back to standard MO. So mad that he issued his second and his third just kill me now prayers. Jonah says in verse 9, and when God says, when God says again, he asked a second time, do you do well to be angry in verse 9? He says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Just kill me now. You may be thinking, I thought this was about Jonah's repentance at this point. I thought chapter 4 was Jonah's repentance. Not just kill me now. Are you right to be angry? Yes, I'm right to be angry. Because right here, Jonah is still right in his own eyes. And it's not on the screen, but verses 10 and 11, last two verses of the book, God puts the question to him. Basically, Jonah, tell me why I shouldn't have mercy on Nineveh. When they repent, Jonah, tell me why I shouldn't have mercy on them. And that's where the book ends. <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> There's humor in that because he says, notice, what's the last word of the book? Cattle. He says, tell me, tell me why I shouldn't relent when there's more than 120,000 people there and a lot of cattle. Remember, the cows even repented. And that's where the book ends. God asking this question. And it ends. We're never told what Jonah's answer to the question was. Or are we? See, I think Jonah wrote this book. And I think, that being the case, knowing that Jonah wrote this book, does Jonah paint himself in a positive light in this book? No. Jonah doesn't hide anything. He recorded not one, not two, but three just kill me now prayers, arguing with God, running away from God. Angry, seething, exceedingly angry. I think this whole book is Jonah's confession. That he was wrong. I think this whole book is his repentance. Not covering over any of his sins. Any of his flaws. And in writing it this way, God, in this book, God has both the first word and the last word in Jonah. God's the first one to speak and the last one to speak. I think the book of Jonah shows us our sinfulness. It shows God's holiness and His mercy and His sovereignty, His desire to save, His graciousness, His mercy, our need for repentance, how He sovereignly works in us to bring us to repentance. But as we come to the New Testament, Jesus shows us how Jonah also reveals the gospel ahead of time in a much more obvious way.
even beyond those things. I'll put it on the screen, but here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, we're told, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up against, uh, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying the, the story of Jonah uh, in the fish and then three, for three days and three nights is foreshadowing Jesus' death in our place while we were still enemies. Being in the tomb for three days and rising again to life on the third day. So in Jonah, God not only pictured his willingness to forgive those who were enemies against him, but he also foreshadowed how he would do it through the sending of his son and the resurrection from the dead in a full and final way. That's the gospel according to Jonah eight centuries ahead of time. Let's pray.